Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I am Rachel Edelman, Associate Professor of Hebrew Bible at Hebrew College in Boston, and I am your host for today. I've invited J. Richard Middleton to speak about his new book, Abraham's Silence, The Binding of Isaac, The Suffering of Job, and How to Talk Back to God, published in 2021 by Baker Academic Press. J. Richard Middleton is professor of biblical worldview and exegesis at Northeastern Seminary in Rochester, New York. A native of Jamaica, he is past president of the Canadian American Theological Association and the Canadian Society of Biblical Studies. His main research area is theology of the Hebrew scriptures with a focus on creation, suffering, and the ethics of power. His two most recent books are A New Heaven and A New Earth, Reclaiming Biblical Theology or Eschatology Eschatology. in 2014, also with Baker, and The Liberating Image, the Mago Dei in Genesis 1 by Brazos in 2005. So it is traditional to think we should praise Abraham for his willingness to sacrifice his son as proof of his love of God. But as J. Richard Middleton goes on to show, perhaps we've misread the story. So, um, Richard, if I may. Yes, you're certainly. <laughs> what prompted you to write this book? About half my life ago, I had started a doctoral program at Syracuse University, which crashed and burned. And that happened when my wife and myself had moved from Canada, where we'd been living, to upstate New York. And we didn't have much com- community or, or friendships or context. And if a program crashes and burns and you're kind of isolated, you go through a bit of a sociological and psychological crisis, but I also went through a bit of a faith crisis. What's the direction for my life? I was hoping to move towards an academic career. And looking back, I realized that I hadn't prayed for about six months, primarily because I, I, looking back, have discerned that why would you pray to a God who you felt had just let you crash and burn? (laughs) And so the, the, the question of how do you address God when your life is messed up was important for me existentially, and it was the Psalms of Lament that brought me back to a prayer and revitalized my faith and made it significantly deeper than it had been before. But it also meant that the, the sense of suffering and trauma was closer to the surface than it had been before, because you could never fully get rid of that. Uh, it, it permeated my life, and I've been wondering ever since then, but why didn't Abraham question God when God said to 
sacrifice his son because I learned that in questioning, I reactivated the relationship. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So um, I noticed that only three of the seven chapters of the book are directly concerned with Abraham and the binding of Isaac. Why foreground Abraham's silence? Mm-hmm. And what on the flip side, why and how did you organize the book as yeah. you did? Well, that's a very interesting question because this is a book that was organized differently at different stages of the writing. And the original title I had was The Silence of Abraham, The Passion of Job. And I didn't have a chapter yet on Moses and prophetic intercession. I had a idea of an introductory chapter on lament psalms and then moved to Abraham and his failure to lament. And then Job and his alternative to Abraham. In the, in the writing, of course, often happens as my books, my books are my ideas. I'm going to write a short book and it grows as I'm interacting with the material and I rearrange the material. And I was going to have one chapter on Abraham and one on Job <laughs> and then two on Abraham and then three on Abraham. And in the process, I changed my mind about one thing. I'd originally thought that the author of Genesis portrayed Abraham as a successful um, exemplar of how one should respond to God, holding up unquestionable obedience and questioned obedience as a model, and Job being a critique of that. The more I studied the text, the more I realized, I, I came to, to think everything is, you know, a perhaps, it's, you, you don't hold anything with absolute certainty, but I came to say, it's really possible to read this text as also showing that Abraham failed. In that case, maybe let me highlight the failure a little more and do more with, you know, contextual reading of the Abraham story. And so I put Job before Abraham in the final version. And at the very end, realized my title, Silence of Abraham, Passion of Job, didn't work. And it was maybe just a couple of months before publication. I said, let's call the book Abraham's Silence and highlight that. Uh-huh. Really interesting. And and you talk a lot in the beginning about lament and the power of lament in Psalms. It's almost as if um, let's set up a model for the ideal communication with God when there is suffering. And then we'll turn to how Job responds and then turn to how Abraham fails to respond. Um, I thought that was a very interesting model. Um, uh, so I really, I don't usually think about Abraham as silent. <laughs> in a way, he's the first one who engages in dialogue with God in the Bible. Um, so he protests the destruction of Sodom in chapter 18, and he asks God why, is not be- why he has not been granted progeny. And when he will inherit the land in chapter 15 in the covenant between the pieces. So why do you think he's silent in the context of the Akedah and the binding of Isaac in chapter 22? Why? How can I summarize that in one short answer? (laughs) I took a book to work on. So, So let me just clarify what I'm trying to do here in this book, the way I understand it. I want to read Akedah but I want to read it contextually. And there's different contexts. For me, the biggest context is the context of models of vigorous prayer in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Secondary context would be contrasting and comparing Job and Abraham in the Akedah. 
And the next contrast is looking at Abraham in the context of the Abraham story and its unfolding. And so what I suggest is the traditional a paradigm for understanding the Akedah depends on an interpretation of the Abraham story as one of God's promise of Virginian land. The um, delay of, the, of these gifts and then when Abraham gets the, the progeny, testing him to see, will he be obedient despite having to give up that gift? And I look at that arc, that narrative arc, and suggest for various reasons, it it's, doesn't really make sense of certain things in the story. But I suggest another narrative arc of a, a man being chosen out of the nations who does not have any prior experience of God and needs to learn who this God is. And I trace the developing relationship of Abraham with God, the covenant of the pieces. He questions God twice and receives answers twice. Of course, the second time when he um, when, when the, the smoking fire pot moves through the pieces, you have no narrative analysis of Abraham's response. It is left totally open-ended. Does he actually believe or does he still question? We don't know. In 18, he does question. And I don't think he went far enough in the questioning. And that is my reading of the story. Um, God, will you save the city for 50,000? Sure. 45,000? Sure. 40,000? Sorry, not 40. Sure. 30, 20, sure. 10, sure. Why not just say, save the city? (laughs) So God seems to want to give Abraham anything he asks. So I think that the teaching moment of chapter 18 is for Abraham to learn who this God is, a God who would respond to the the questioning of his servant, um, to give him what he wants, to show mercy. But since Abraham doesn't get that point, I now view contextually a plausible reading of chapter 22 is God says, let's up the ante. I'm not going to destroy a city where your nephew Lot is living. I want you to kill your own son. Let's see if that will get him to question me and say, just call it off. Um, Because that's what I think he should have done in chapter 18. Just call it off. God and God said, sure. Okay. Now you know the way of the Lord. You know, so let's up the ante and see. And instead he is totally silent. So that's the way I look at it. It is primarily a test of the discerning the character of God. Mm-hmm. And there's two ways to look at that test. Either he could discern that God is merciful and so say, could you please spare this boy? <laughs> or he could not be sure, but he could take the risk and learn through the prayer that God is merciful. Mm-hmm. He asked God to save the boy. That's the first part of the test. The second part, I think, is show you love the boy because you haven't shown it before in the narrative. You've shown you're committed to Ishmael and Sarah is committed to Isaac. Let me see, can you stand in the breach and defend this child against me? Then that would build a relationship between the two of you because clearly it doesn't. And so I look at a lot of the fallout of the story on the, the, the relationships Abraham has and all the negative side of that. And most scholars that I've noticed in commentaries today don't really address that in relation to the Akedah. And I think that's important because I want to bring human experience to the text. Mm. Mm-hmm. So um, you feel that he failed the text, test, essentially. That's your, your thesis. And, and that um, as a consequence, Abraham never talks to God again. He has a broken relationship with his son. And when he returns to meet Sarah, it's really essentially to bury her. 
Yes. Um, right. He, he, he goes to Beersheba. She dies mysteriously in Hebron. And, um, um, and uh, you know, if we go with the Midrashic narrative that um, she dies immediately after the Akedah, and as a consequence of the Akedah, he is implicated in her death. Um, but I want to I want to go to John Levinson's challenge, right? Sure, so sure. John Levinson said that anyone who says Abraham failed the test does not take seriously the finale. Mm-hmm. Where the patriarch is praised explicitly for not withholding his son and the covenant is renewed. So what do you do with John Levinson's challenge? I'm thinking about his um, resurrection of the beloved son. Yes. Yes, Levinson has been very strong that anyone who critiques the um, exemplary Abraham of the Akedah is doing so on extrinsic religious grounds, objecting to this from a, a position outside the Bible. So the very last thing I actually wrote in the book was not the conclusion. It was the analysis of the angel speeches, which are supposed to validate Abraham. Because that's the toughest part, right? And as I was reading that, I came to see that it's possible to read it differently. Now, what I didn't say in that part of the book, which I should say, but in everything else in the book I'd written, and let's sit, revised, rephrase, try to make the, the argument stronger. That part was written at the very end when the publisher had a deadline. I didn't have time to really make the point I wanted to. And I, what I want to say is this. It is impossible, almost impossible, to read a text fresh when you have 2,000 years of interpretation. <laughs> And so we are obviously going to be shaped by that. So I want to say, could we read it differently? And I look at the, the, the first angel speech says, now I know that you fear God. Now, that is a consequence of the test. It's what God learns. It doesn't say that was the purpose of the test. So that's one of the points I made. Again, Every point you can challenge, but you put together a coherent story and an interpretation, it becomes more plausible, I think. Um, take your son, you know, um, your, your only one whom you love, Isaac, you know. Every phrase in that has a direct object marker, et, except the relative clause, asher ahavta, which is syntactically different. So I take that, to, that as a clue to say, not as a statement of fact that you love Isaac, but take your son, you love him, right? As a hint, let me see if you love him. What will you do in response? So that's in the, um, in the, in the original command God gives. In both angel speeches, we are told, because you have not withheld your son, your only one, and they left out the phrase, whom you love. I remember as I was walking in the woods one day, 2016, <laughs> memorizing this text, and I was going through the first angel speech, and I got to, you know, lo chasakta et binha et yehidaha, and I was about to say asher ahavta, and I said, it's not there. And it struck me, wow, it's not there, because it shows he doesn't love his son. So that was a little clue there in the first angel speech. In the second angel speech, um, Levinson, along with many scholars, will say, here God now makes the blessing of the nations dependent or consequent upon Abraham's obedience. But actually, it was made consequent in Abraham's obedience in chapter 18. First, I'm going to teach 
Abraham, I'm going to reveal to Abraham what I'm going to do with Sodom so that he may teach his um, children and house after him the way of the Lord. Mishkatu Sadaka. So he has to learn that through the encounter to teach it. And, he's, and then so that I may, you know, bless the nations will be blessed through him. That's what it's already consequent on his obedience because he didn't get it either in chapter 18 or 22. God swears by himself an oath, right? That I will bless them anyway because he can't yeah. do it. And I, I so interesting. And if I so had the oath is to bolster God's will to bless compensate for your deficiency. Now, most people say, well, that's it. no, it can't mean that. It must mean God is praising Abraham. But if you weren't already committed to that point of view, this is an equally plausible point of view, especially because this is essentially what happens in the golden calf episode, which I deal with in an earlier chapter. Because Israel breaks covenant, God then says, I'm going to be a God now of love and overflowing with, with chesed and forgiving sin and iniquity and so on. So the covenant no longer depends on your obedience. You need to obey still for to live it before me, but the, con the covenant is based on my mercy. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I have a footnote, so I didn't have any space. I was running out of page numbers in this book. In these books, you have to add 16 pages at a time if you want to add more, right, in a published book. That's that's the folio that they use. And I couldn't, I had a footnote. You also find this transformation in the book of Deuteronomy and in the book of Ezekiel and in the book of Jeremiah from a time when they're supposed to obey when they can't obey so god says i will help you obey and i'll put i'll give you a heart of flesh and i'll put my torah in your heart and i will circumcise the foreskin of your heart those are the kind of language that god steps in to do what the people fail to do so i saw that model already there and that led that led me to think this is what's going on and then the final part of the second angel speech says that because you have listened to my voice right the nations will be blessed by your zera for the mm. first time, not by you, but by your seed. Now, if you sacrifice your son, you don't have descendants. <laughs> so because you have um, not sacrificed Isaac, I can now bless the, the, the nations. So I just showed there's different ways to read the angel speeches that are not obviously validations of Abraham. Mm. Am I sure and confident of that? How can I be sure in the face of 2,000 years of interpretation? But I think it's quite plausible. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. You, you spend a long time in the beginning establishing a plain sense methodology of reading. In Hebrew, we would call that pshat. Mm -hmm. But you certainly know your commentary in Midrash well. You resort primarily to a contextual reading and turn away from the history of interpretation. And you've said a little bit about why. Um, so I want to probe you and yeah. I want to ask, is there a boundary to reading? Hmm. And is there a right reading and a wrong reading? I mean, how do you, let's say, transcend that 2,000-year-old yeah. Uh, weight of interpretation and then say, actually, there's another way of, of seeing this. Anything I say would be a reflection on the praxis of interpretation that I've done. None of this do I start with. 
I, I've learned that anybody who starts with their methodology doesn't know what they're going to end up with, or they end up with finding exactly their methodology in the text. And I want to say I want to be more open. But certainly part of my assumption is in the community of faith that I'm dealing with, they're interested in the Peshat. So I want to address that. And I'm interested in it as a, as a literary reading of the text within its own narrative world. I want to understand that. One, one of the way, reasons that I went into the, the Midrashim is because you get a sense of what the contextual existential issues are that, that people are bringing to the text. And, and I, I'm very aware that you always bring these issues to the text. Even the most quote unquote objective scholarly reading comes out of the scholars interests. There's, there's no neutral readings. So I'm aware that a Peshat reading is the choice I made. Of course, you make choices. And can I fully discern my own choices and why I made them? Only after the fact, and then dimly. <laughs> <laughs> Through a glass darkly. <laughs> yes, there you go. There you go. Um, so do you think there is a boundary to reading? Sorry, I asked you that question. Um, is there a boundary line to criticizing God, right? You, 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 you know, you're, you're, um, you're more comfortable with criticizing Abraham, but my inclination is to criticize yeah. God for asking him in the first place. Right. Uh, right. So I'm thinking very particularly about uh, Carol Delaney's book, Abraham on Trial, which came out in 2000 mm -hmm. with Princeton University Press. And her thesis is that God, this God who speaks to Abraham demanding he sacrifice his son is not a moral God. Mm -hmm. And she quotes the 18th century moral philosopher, Immanuel Kant. And I would, I just want to read that little section yeah, yes. from, from you, right? If God should really speak to man, man could still never know that it was God speaking. It is quite possible for man to apprehend the infinite by his senses, distinguish it from sensible beings, and recognize it as such. But in some cases, man can be sure the voice he hears is not God's. For if the voice commands him to do something contrary to the moral law, then he might then no matter how majestic the apparition may be, and no matter how it may seem to surpass the whole nature, he must consider it an illusion. Okay, that's categorical imperative, Immanuel Kant, right. uh, his whole thesis um, in um, yeah, the conflict of the faculties. Okay. So, um, so I, you know, I, so what would, what Kant comes from a principle, a moral principle, and say says that can be no god I want to worship. Mm -hmm. But you don't come from that position. You come from a very different position. Right. Your focus is on the way Abraham hears and responds to the command. Right. And and I want to hear more about that difference. So let me first of all say that okay. So I do quote Kant in from the conflict of the faculties, but a different quote about where he said that I ought to kill my good son is quite certain, but that you, this apparition, are God of that, I am not certain and can never be, even if this voice rings down to me from heaven. This is a, so I quote Kant, because I take that seriously. Kant is also quoted by Levinson, who says that this is an unacceptable approach. So I'm somewhere between Kant and Levinson. 
Um, and I haven't read um, Newsom, uh, was it uh, Delaney's book? So, so I, yeah. I can't comment on her particular approach. But, you know, um, Levinson and many others will say, anyone who says that God is a moral monster, you know, this is an extrinsic critique, not internal to the text. So I believe that you can question God, but there are two ways to question God. There are at least two ways to question God. It depends on the kind of speech act your questioning is embedded in. If I question God directly to God's face, that's a diff in prayer, that's a different kind of speech act for me going behind God's back and questioning God to others. I think that's the fundamental difference between lament and the grumbling in the wilderness. The grumbling in the wilderness is, is, doesn't take it directly to God. There are a few times it is taken directly to God, and God does not re uh, respond in judgment. And it would be sort of like you have something against a person that you're close to. Are you going to go and badmouth them behind their back? Or are you going to confront them directly and say, I got a problem with how you're treating me? To me, that's the difference. And you can question God, and I have, um, very radically in prayer. I, I, I don't think it's normally appropriate to question God by writing a theological treatise about God being immoral. I wouldn't do that. I fully understand the experiential dimensions of why people would write that and will talk about that. But I, I don't think I need to do that. There are many texts in the Bible that I find problematic, severely problematic about God. <laughs> I don't know always how to deal with them. So I say to my students, never simply put, sweep them under the rug, but don't, eat, don't excise them from the Bible either, in Thomas Jefferson's mode. Take them there, but they're, it's like you're in a rainforest in the Amazon, and there's the poison arrow frogs. You don't want to go touch those frogs. They're dangerous to you. <laughs> Some of those texts are really texts of terror, but maybe you shouldn't touch them now, but leave them in the landscape and figure out how you can understand the ecology. That doesn't solve any problems, I know. <laughs> so besides the direct questioning of God, which I think one should do about the texts in scripture that are problematic, um, live with the problems and think about them and reflect on them. Talk about them, but don't come to a decision. God is a moral monster. That's the way I look at it personally. So it's almost as if you want to stay in relationship with God no matter what. And the question is, what's the right kind of conversation to be had with, right. you know, with, with the creator of the universe and um, the origin of ethical monotheism um, to stay in relationship with that source. But also um, to stay in relationship with the theological tradition that I'm in. Yeah. I'm cutting myself off from that tradition, but I could be a dissenting voice along the way. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. So that brings me to Abraham in pleading for Sodom in what Nehemiah Leibowitz calls his command performance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and he says, shall not all the judge of all the earth do what is just, right? In uh, 1825. And um, George Coates has called this, uh, as you pointed out, his, he plays the role of his majesty's loyal opposition. And you make this point, you make this point um, that he doesn't go far enough, right? God is basically saying, here, I'll give you the car. <laughs> it's <laughs> right? like, 
and you don't even write the right number. We're bargaining, 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 but I'll basically give you the car. Um, so um, my my issue with that, when you say he doesn't go far enough, that is because he he doesn't he doesn't even mention his nephew lot and his nephews he doesn't come and defend his nephews who's there locked in this this sin city um i i have difficulty with that right i have difficulty with this critique obviously 10 is a typological number when he bargains mm-hmm. god down to 10 um and i see actually that Abraham doesn't mention Lot precisely because of the principle he's trying to demonstrate. It's a universal principle of justice. And I would say investigation, you have to determine whether there's innocence or guilty. You can't wipe away the innocent with the guilty. And if he were to have mentioned Lot in that conversation, it would particularize his defense of the innocent of the city instead of making it about the universal. And this is a universal claim for justice that he's making. So that's very traditional as an interpretation. So again, how am I going to go against, you know, thousands of years of interpretation? Um, But maybe I could go to Emmanuel Levinas, that it is the individual face in which I find genuine justice. So I don't think there is a contradiction between the universal and the particular here at all. Mm-hmm. And when the question is, what's that story of Sodom doing in the, in the Abraham narrative? It seems to me that it's when you read in context. Now, I'm very aware that a lot of the reading I do, I look what comes next and say, how is it related to what comes before? And that can be a logical fallacy, right? In a post hoc ergo propter hoc. Just because it comes after doesn't mean it was caused by what came before. But right. I want to see the connections. I want to weave them together. And the angels come and rescue Lot and his family, <laughs> which suggests to me that that's important to the story. And in later um, Jewish apocalyptic literature, and it actually shows up in the New Testament in Second Peter in an apocalyptic text that is drawing on this Jewish apocalyptic tradition, the destruction of Sodom becomes a metaphor or a model for the, the apocalyptic destruction of evil, wherein God wants to rescue the righteous. And so that's interesting to me that that's part of the history of tradition. And I think that maybe is an insight into the function of the story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for that. So let's turn to Job. Okay. Happens to be one of my favorite, absolutely favorite books in the Bible. Um, It has more hapex legomena than any other book in the Bible. It's very difficult Hebrew. And and I think conceptually, theologically, very, very difficult. So when you compare Job to Abraham, where does Job seem to do a better job in dialogue with God than Abraham does? So the way I read it, and, and so on, on the Job reading, I am not very different from a number of contemporary readers. I maybe have synthesized their works together, slightly different configuration. But I think that Job does better in that Job does not accept the legitimacy of his suffering but Job questions it continuously. And the friends want him to accept it, to to just submit to God because God is incomprehensible or or something like that. And and a human being is nothing. So who are you to question God? 
But Job refuses to have that. He wants to bring God into the dock, if you will, to have God answer him. Now, God, of course, does not explain anything. So that's been a, a major point that many interpreters have said for a long time. But there's always been a tension in contemporary biblical interpretation of the book of Job between the what, what God says to Eliphaz and his friends about Job's speech, you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has, and you and your friends, plural. So Job has spoken what is nekona, which is right of God, established. Yet the speech of God from the whirlwind suggests that Job has spoken wrongly because God is trying to correct him, put him in his place. That tension is what drew me to the book of Job in the first place, to, to figure that out. And as I read the speeches from the whirlwind, it became very clear with the guidance of a number of other commentators today, to me, that God is not actually putting Job in his place. God is affirming Job's lament. So God is not a uh, cosmic bully, mm -hmm. <laughs> but rather he's trying to affirm um, the claim, respond to Job's claim, show up in court, I want to have my heyday in court. Show me what you've got. But he doesn't answer him directly, right? Um, there's this whole litany going back to creation all the way, praise of the, the ostrich and the, the, the horse. And, and then there's this, there's this you know, um, Job initially responds to the first revelation, by clapping his hand over his mouth in silence. And then God has another whirlwind uh, revelation where he speaks about the Leviathan and the behemoth. Mm -hmm. And then God, then Job opens his mouth again. So tell me about uh, one, why the Leviathan and the behemoth? What do we learn from that? And um, how does John res Job respond differently in the second right. speech act to the first speech act. So after the first speech, there is silence. And then you have what I take as a speech resumption formula. And the Lord said again to Job. <laughs> so God is saying, what God says is, you know, um, look, gird up your loins like a giver and I will question you and you will declare to me. And I want to answer. And Job's answer is I'm not going to talk anymore. Hand over mouth. And then God challenged him again. Okay, I want you to answer me now. Here's a second speech. And in this speech, he has these two mythological monsters, right? Leviathan and Behemoth. And these monsters are powerful. And they're both described in different places, having large mouths. Behemoth's mouth is open and the Jordan River is rushing against it and can't knock him down. Um, and of course, Job earlier spoke of the, the comfort as his friends as a, a, a rushing riverbed, but then it dried up as a dead wadi and it couldn't knock him down. And that's where he first uses the phrase dust and ashes because he feels he's useless. He's, he has no power, which I think is belied by the fact that he could stand up to his friends just as Behemoth can stand up to the rushing Jordan. Also, Leviathan has breathed flames of fire and no one can put a hook in his tongue and tame him, just like Job. And I've learned from Bill Brown of Columbia Seminary and his works on the second speech that the primary comparison is of the mouths of the beasts and Job's speech, that Job, like the, 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 these beasts, are what is a wild creature who speaks what he says and God is like Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, looking at these crocodiles saying, 
beautiful creature, beautiful, dangerous, get away, but beautiful creature, you know. God is not in any sense opposed to these beasts, but proud of them. And, and Job, I think, is comforted by that. So he has a different response. Um, I could say a little bit more about Job's response if you want to. Yes, actually, the, there are some of my favorite lines in the whole. Um, so let's open that. I have um, Ed Greenstein's translation, mm -hmm. which um, just came out last year. Fabulous translation. And maybe we can compare. Um, let's look at uh, chapter 42, verses 1 through 5. Go ahead. You, you, you have a beautiful translation, too. Yeah. So, uh, I don't have the exact full translation in front of me, but I have my analysis. To, to, yeah. This is what Job says. Uh, in response to the second speech, Job gives responses to both speeches sequentially. He first admits, I know you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Then he has a bit of a paraphrase from what God said in the first speech. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And his response is, look, I've uttered what I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me that I didn't know. So the first speech I view as challenging Job's understanding of how God runs the universe. And God says, I don't run it the way you think. And Job says, okay, I, I got that now, and, and I, I'm corrected. But his response to the second speech begins with, here and I will speak, I will question you and you will declare to me. Most modern translations, and I don't have um, this one in front of me, so you can tell me what he says. They have the quotation from the second speech as, here and I will speak, I will question you and you will declare to me. But the only part of it that is a quotation is, I will question you and you will declare to me. But just like the, got Job's response to the first speech in verses two and three, he first makes his own statement before he quotes God back to him. Here, I believe that what Job says to God is, here, and I will speak. In other words, I'm not silent anymore. I'm going to talk. Um, and you said, I'll question you and you'll declare to me. Okay, got it. Well, here's what I'm going to declare to you. <laughs> and what he declares is that um, I'd only heard of you by the hearing of the air. Now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract. Is it nihamti, nihamti, in Hebrew, nihamti, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I'm retracted and I'm comforted about dust and ashes. I think the, the, the emas was, was the retract and nihamti is the comforted, am I right? Or am I getting um, that? No, right, emas, yeah, emas is the first one, I am fed up. And I think it's pretty clear, nihamti does mean I'm comforted in this context, was every yeah. other use of, of naham is about comfort in the book of Job, including right after this, there's a, the friends and relatives come and comfort Job. Right. And so I think that he is comforted that even dust and ashes can address the creator and, and, and get a personal theophany <laughs> in response. Yeah. The question is, what does retract mean? And I take that to, to mean he either is retracting his lawsuit against God or he's retracting his previous silence. Mm. I'm not sure which one, it could be, could be a double entendre there. That's my reading. And I, I understand that you can translate those verses in many, many, many different ways. And linguistics um, never decides the final meaning of a text. It's linguistics in context of the broader meaning. So I'm not making my interpretation of Job depend simply on the translation, but I think that translation works with the overall interpretation I've given. Really powerful. Yeah. So Greenstein has, um, so the first, here, now I will speak. I will ask you and you help me know. 
quoting God. The whole of that. Yeah, that whole, okay. all quoting God. Um, and God has said exactly that in um, 38, 3 and 47. As a hearing by the ear, I have heard you. But now my eyes sees you and I have seen you. That is why I am fed up, emas. That's from the root mem alaf samech. And I take pity on dust and ash. Now, the only time that afar ve'efer shows up, dust and ash shows up, is earlier in Job, um, chapter 30, as you mentioned, chapter 30, verse 19. And in Genesis 18, 27, where... Um, Abraham, in the context of that, you know, his majesty's loyal opposition speech, I'm just dust and ash. How dare I speak this way to you? Nevertheless, Nevertheless. I'm challenge you, God, right? But here it's Nihamti. And Ed Greenstein, whom I studied with directly, wow. um, these verses, he said, um, it's, I am sorry for a mortal man mm-hmm. who, who, but I love your reading. I think yours is, yours of, yours is a really powerful, right? I, I have, I take pity on dust and ash, mortal human beings, but I love that you've capitalized on the resonance with Abraham's audacity here I am audaciously speaking as mortal human being uh, and challenging God to do the ways of justice and righteousness. Mm-hmm. Really, really powerful resonance there. And then, of course, Abraham is affirmed, right, um, for his speech, whereas his friends spoke. Job is Job. Yeah, Job, sorry. Job mm-hmm. is affirmed for his speech. And his friends are condemned, and um, he has to bring sacrifice um, for his friends and atone for them, right? I'm angry at you and your two companions, right? He's speaking to Eliphaz, uh, for you did not speak about me honestly as my, my servant Job. So that is God directly affirms the way God, Job spoke about God. He's got it right. That is we should call God to court and claim, um, you know, make a claim for justice. We should lament, right? There's an affirmation of the voice of lament here in the book of Job. So your reading is, is very powerful. I love it. Um, so I want, um, I want to, turn to the earlier chapters, uh, what is the function of lament? How is lament a form of protest? So it seems to me that works all very well when we're talking about Job because he suffered inexorably. He lost all of his wealth. He lost his 10 children. He has this horrible skin disease. So makes sense that he would be lamenting and complaining um, to God and asking for his day in court and asking to be vindicated. But in the case of Abraham, very different timing, right? Abraham is tried and is silent before the actual binding of Isaac. Yes. So if you 
really wanted him to speak up and say no to God, he would have to protest the actual command. And that's different from lament. Mm-hmm. So, so tell me, tell me what that's about. So um, in chapter 18, though, he does protest prior to the suffering that would happen. And I think that this in is Sodom and, Sodom and Gomorrah. And for me, the parallel is Moses um, protesting God's claim that he will now wipe out Israel after the golden calf. So I, those are intercession. Now, intercession and lament will relate in this way. A lament psalm has multiple um, speech acts within it. One of them is petition or supplication. Are you asking for something? Complaint is the describing the problem. <laughs> here's my problem, God. You have abandoned us. Um, here's here's the, the petition. It's what, what I want you to do for us. Um, intercession is simply a petition on behalf of someone else. So for me, when I say lament, I don't mean necessarily complaining. I mean asking God to do something differently than what God either has been doing or will be doing. So standing in the breach, <laughs> either in before the, the, the problem or after the problem, but it's the same basic kind of speech act. You're telling, you're holding God to God. God, this is your standard. It ain't happening. This is what we, we need you to do to be who you're supposed to be. That's why I think lament is ultimately a faithful act because it's calling on your discernment of who God really ought to be acting, who God is, which should direct how God acts in the world. And you're saying, make it so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Book of Lamentations doesn't have that so much, <laughs> no, it uh, but certainly in Jeremiah, there's a lot of lament speech that um, calls God to justice. I usually tell my students, don't confuse lamentations and lament. They're mm-hmm. not the same speech genre. There may be laments within the Book of Lamentations, but of course, most of us, most of it is um, framed as a kina in the kina measure. So it is really a, it is a dirge, a funeral dirge. For, for Jerusalem, it does have petition in there a little bit, but not that much. Mm-hmm. So you're right; it's, it's a mourning. It's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to share a piece from Andre Nair. Okay. Uh, the exile of the word. Uh, so he brings in this um, egg, midrashic tradition from Genesis Rabbah, which is that God turns to Job immediately after the trial of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. It says in Genesis 22, 20, before introducing the genealogy that leads up to the birth of Rebekah, it says, after these things are words, and of course, the rabbis say, what words, what things, right. what happened, right? What happened? Um, so this is Andre Nair. It's a, just a gorgeous book by the French philosopher, um, contemporary French philosopher. I think he's still alive. It was after these words that Abraham locked himself in vertical silence, and God accompanied him within that silence. It was after these words that Abraham chose and obtained silence in order to devote himself to works. That is, he turned from dialogue with God to masim tovim, to, to good deeds, burying his, his, his wife, uh, marrying his son off to Rebecca, you know, having more children, but no more conversations with God, right? Enough. 
Um, so, and if he obtained it, it was because God had discovered Abraham's successor. It was because at the very moment when Abraham had chosen works, a man was born to whom God was to transfer all the trials of camp combat. Mm -hmm. It was after these words, Tvarim. It was after this tempest in the mind that Abraham was told, Milka has born children to your brother, Nahor, Uz, the firstborn, etc. Now Uz was Job. As it is written, and that's a quote from uh, Breshi Rabba. Um, as it is written, there was once a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that's from Andre Nair, the exile of the word from silence of the Bible to the silence of Auschwitz. Now, what do you make of that reading? To read it sequentially, to say, Abraham closed the apertures of communication with God and then took up a conversation with Job and said, let's see how he responds to this trial. So in this interpretation, it's God takes up the conversation with Job because Abraham has cut it off, if you will. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, that is, yeah. um, he's granted him sort of a, as, a, as a gift, as a, okay, I tried you enough. Um, it's yeah. it hard enough, right? Your your Abraham's silence is a is is a failure. Right, right, right. In in the Genesis Rabbah, Abraham's silence is I've I've tried you enough. Grace, I'm gonna give you a break. Go on and live your life. <laughs> no, no, I'm gonna yeah. right. It's it's yeah. Well, so, so, then I would, yeah. so I would say, look, um, I am not totally negative about Abraham and Akedah. <laughs> I want to say that the fact that Abraham sacrificed the ram without being instructed is a discernment. Mm -hmm. And later on, when Abraham's servant goes to find Rachel, he makes a comment about God's great mercy to, to Rebecca. Yeah, he yeah. speaks to Laban saying that God has made great, shown great mercy to my, my master. And I'm wondering if Abraham came in the narrative, came to view that God's mercy really has enfolded me despite my silence, whether you take it as positive or negative, I think negative, but God, so he has known something of God's mercy nevertheless. So this reading does cohere to some extent with my own, that I do think that God is merciful despite Abraham's silence, you could say because of it, or in this reading, because of Abraham's suffering, maybe, God says, okay, silence, you got that, I'm not going to push you anymore on that. I think that makes sense. And now comes Job. Well, I do view Job and Abraham as these two poles. I, I see that. I mean, I even quoted the scholar who, who coined the term Jobraham, that, that these, uh, people, these two are put together so often that let's call it one person, right? <laughs> I yeah. mean, you know, um, uh, Jubilees has Abraham being tested by Mastema, very similar to Job by the by the yeah. and the Tanhuma also yeah, echoes, so, yeah, many other echoes, ones yeah really yeah. fabulous. Judy so, so I see validity to this. I, I, I mean, it's not a Peshat reading, I don't think, <laughs> but but the connection of Uz in this text and in Job, and I mentioned there's other things of the genealogy there. That I'm that the come boots, up with, that, the term, uh, yeah. yes, and also um, chesed and chasdim, and mm. those come up. So there are some connections there. Yeah. So mm. yeah, uh, I, my, I'm not saying you got to put aside every every reading that doesn't match mine. I'm open to hosting these readings and learning from them. Yes. Yeah. 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 
And there's a sense in the Midrash, it's kind of ominous that Job has a greater endurance and yet is more daring in challenging God to answer the problem of theodicy. Um, So, uh, yeah, it seems to, yeah, what ultimately does Job's lament protest teach us about how to be in relationship with God? And suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. What do you What do you think? What are, you know? Invoking Hamlet. Yes, <laughs> what yes, do you yes, think? Yes. Uh, ultimately, Job is teaching us. And stick with Hamlet. I don't think um, that, that God is saying of of Job what is said of Gertrude. Methinks the lady doth protest too much. <laughs> Job does not protest no. too much. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, so I, I think that I think it's it's an affirmation of of um, vigorous dialogue with God. That's what yeah. I think it is. Yeah. I, think it's, it's a, I, I read Job as a wisdom book, asking the question, what does a righteous person say to God and about God in a context of extreme suffering? Let's take an extreme case. Job is not every, every man, every person. Job is unusual. People don't suffer this normally. So whether it's a metaphor of Israel in exile, as it comes to be viewed later and so forth, we don't yeah. know. But whatever it is, it's a paradigm to say, in suffering, do not simply accept that it is God's will. Challenge God about it. Because whatever we think theologically about providence, and, and the book of Job in the first speech basically says, you don't understand providence. God is not going to explain it to you. <laughs> and the world is a wild, untamed place, and suffering happens. Get, get over it. But never think that you need to be just silently submissive in the face of that suffering. Grapple with it and grapple with God which I think leads to moral fortitude. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and a strong sense of justice. Yes. Um, and, and not, a, you know, um, uh, yeah, not a passive acceptance of evil. Right. It's very important. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so I want to, I want to bring this to a close. Uh, I, I wanted to, and by asking a pretty open-ended question, what are you working on these days? Yeah. Uh, give us a peek. Okay, l- lots of things. And believe it or not, I have five book contracts right now. Oh, no. But the one I'm working on right now that I'm partway through is a study of the dynamics between God, Samuel, and Saul in the first 15 chapters of First Samuel. It's called Portrait of a Disgruntled Prophet, Samuel's Resistance to God and the Undoing of Saul. And I'm looking at the power. I, I, my, my thesis is, I'm actually much stronger on this than I am on the Akeda, that I see um, that Samuel abuses the power of the prophetic office and destroys Saul from because he is so resistant to Saul, to the monarchy, and he's resistant to Saul taking over his position of leadership. He is also, this is a unique thing in my reading, he's also resistant to the idea that God should Nacham. Yeah. Because in, in chapter 15, the God tells him, look, I have Nehamed about making Saul king. And the narrator says, God, Nehamed, changed his mind, repented, whatever you want to call that, about making Saul king. But Samuel tells Saul, God is not a human being that he would lie or ever Nehamed. Yeah. And he has this immutable view of God. That's why he calls God the Netzach of Israel. And Netzach, yeah. of course, is, a, is an adverb that means perpetual. Mm. continual so i think it, it's the closest to divine immutability that mm. you have the character in the bible stating clearly 
right. he doesn't mean God should have bent to give them um, a king. God should have been more firm because he is like God, firm in resisting. And I think he destroys Saul in the process. So it's a study of power. That's what that book is about. So interesting. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you for your time and your contribution to the New Books Network. This has been a fantastic conversation. And uh, and there'll be more conversations in the future, I hope. I'll get a chance to read your, your next book and, and invite you back to New Books Network. Thank you so much, Richard. Rachel, thank you for having me. It's been a wonderful pleasure.